When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Canine Conservationists podcast, where we're positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. Join us every week to discuss detection training, canine welfare, conservation biology, and everything in between. I'm Kayla Fratt, one of the co-founders of Canine Conservationists, where we train dogs to detect data for land managers, researchers, agencies, and NGOs. Today, I am super duper excited to share an interview with Dr. Brian Heron from Kansas State University College of Veterinary Medicine, all about tick-borne diseases. As y'all know, this is something that is near and dear to my heart after Barley had a very scary um, brush with some tick-borne diseases and paralysis. We'll talk about that more throughout the episode. Um, So Dr. Brian Heron graduated from Oklahoma State University for both his doctorate in veterinary medicine and his PhD. His current research focus is the control of ticks and fleas on companion animals. Some of his recent interests are on the early effects of isozazolines on ticks and pathogen transmission and the surveillance of ticks and tick-borne diseases of horses. Although his research focus is on ticks, Dr. Heron enjoys working with all parasites of veterinary importance through the diagnostic service at the KSVDL and teaching outreach opportunities, and he really was a delight to speak to. Before we get into the interview for y'all, though, we're going to dive into our science highlight. This week, we read an article titled, Predominant Risk Factors for Tick-Borne Co-Infections in Hunting Dogs from the USA, which was written by 22 co-authors. The first author was Kurayi Mahachi, and it was published in 2020 in Parasites and Vectors. So, to quote the abstract, both incidence and geographical range of tick-borne diseases has increased across the USA. Similar to people, dogs are hosts for anaplasma, babesia, ehrlichia, and Borrelia burgdorferi, so the authors wanted to examine these risk factors. Basically, they performed a 12-month longitudinal study to look at what extent hunting dogs are exposed to tick-borne infections in the U.S. and then map those geographic distributions over the year. They looked at 214 dogs and broke them into four different regions, the West, Midwest, South, and East. And what they found was that geographical region was very closely related to the presence of suitable tick habitat and therefore which ticks the dogs would encounter. They they evaluated how regional factors increase the risk of each tick-borne disease, and that they found that region was a consistent predictor of exposure to tick-borne diseases. So, for example, seropositivity to Babesia burgdorferi and anaplasma were highest in the east, while hunting dogs in the more southern parts of the Midwest were seropositive for Ehrlichia. And in addition, they found that regional patterns in quantitative PCR findings um, with all positive results coming from the southeast or Midwest regions. All tick-borne pathogens followed the expected temporal pattern with lower positivity rates found in January and February, increasing through August, and then greatest seropositivity found in November. Those expected temporal trends for seroprevalence occurred at the species-specific level as well, and they found that summer humidity and temperatures allowed for elevated emergency activity of nymphs and adult ticks. Therefore, transmission follows the end of summer, depending on the precise emergence and feeding behavior of each tick species. Um, And there's a lot of good maps and charts in this paper that I would really recommend people taking a look at. We'll have a link in the show notes um, to look at kind of what infections were most likely to co-vary in what regions, what regions had the highest rates of specific things. I'm not going to get into all of that here because this is just a highlight, but I would recommend checking this paper out if you are running dogs in the U.S. of A. Finally, we'll close with just one little scary thing from this paper. Um, So they said, surprisingly, Babesia was found in hunting dogs across all regions of the USA. So in particular, the East, Midwest, and West regions had fairly similar percentages of seropositive dogs. So Babesia is not something that affects dogs most heavily in the East. We're getting it just about everywhere except for the South. So without further ado, let's get into our interview with Dr. Brian Heron. 
Are you ready to learn more about training and handling conservation detection dogs? I'm Heather, one of the co-founders of Canine Conservationist. Starting in January 2024, I'll be leading a live session of our online conservation dog handler course with the help of Kayla and Rachel. The course includes 18 sections of material covering topics like dog selection, alert training, sensitivity and specificity, odor dynamics, field safety, finding work, and more. Students in the live session will also have weekly Zoom meetings to discuss the learning and go over homework. All students gain lifetime access to the course material in our online community of learners through WhatsApp and Facebook. For those looking to earn CEUs, the course is approved by CPDT, IAABC, and KPA. We can't wait to join you on your journey. Sign up for the waitlist today, linked in the show notes. excited to talk to you. Um, as we were saying right before we started recording, and as most of our listeners know, this is something that's a little personal for me after um, Barley, my you know main working dog, uh, basically in late May of this year, started showing symptoms of paralysis, um, like a lack of proprioception, tripping, stumbling, unable to stand up. Um, and it was really scary. And within about four days, we managed to get him into the vet and he came back positive for both Ehrlichia and anaplasmosis. Um, showed improvement with about a, m- a week on antibiotics, but kind of kept improving and plateauing and improving and plateauing and was probably at 90% after a month of antibiotics. We did a second month of antibiotics and um, now he seems to be at 100% still. Um, he also, of course, did this um, after getting TPLO so that um, surgery leg is still a little weak, um, but it seems like he's pretty much as close to 100% as he's going to be now that he's 10. Um, but that has now made me a little bit nuts about tick stuff. I've always felt like the procedures that I had been doing to keep my dog safe from ticks worked um, and that I had a good procedure. Um, but, you know, clearly the ticks of Central America proved me wrong. And now we're here to talk to you about it. Yeah, and I think that happens sometimes where, um, you know, there's lots of things that we're concerned about our pets, you know, and and keeping them healthy. And there's things that are on the forefront of our mind. And sometimes the ticks go kind of the back of our mind and it's not a big deal. And they'll just like it's thrust right upon you, you know, and some of these cases can get scary quickly. Um, There are some very severe tick-borne diseases that humans and dogs can get. And Mm -hmm. so then when that happens, it's like, oh, I need to redouble my efforts here in in our our strategy for controlling ticks or preventing them. Yeah, definitely. Um, Yeah, it's, it's scary. And, you know, right before I went to, we did a project where we were helping out a team of um, scat dogs in Kenya. And right before we got there, they actually lost a dog as well to um, a tick-borne disease. Um, And that dog didn't, make it at all um so you know we're lucky we've got barley with us we're lucky he doesn't seem to have any lasting side effects um but you know i'm from the the midwest and we you know it always could be worse so why don't we start out with um are ticks a problem worldwide you know i i know they're problem in central america um obviously but it seems like pretty much everywhere is that right yes definitely so there are different ticks in different areas mm-hmm. So every continent kind of has their own jumble of a few different ones. And so if we're talking about specific, you know, species that we think about here in the U.S., um, may not have them if you head to South America, Africa, Mm -hmm. Australia, um, and they may have their own diseases that they're Mm transmitting. Well, but really, um, ticks are a global phenomenon. They're, um, like I said, most of them are kind of uh, contained to, you know, uh, continent at least. Uh, mm-hmm. we, that's not, no longer true anymore though. So there's one tick that is global, Ripocephalus sanguineus. It's a global tick. It's found everywhere. There's kind of different lineages, but uh-huh. they're, you know, like cousins, but it's still one tick uh, because it lives indoors. And so it's been able to oh. be successful because um, it its primary residence is trying to get indoors. Um, so if you ever see any pictures of like kennel rescues or hoarding rescues where there's lots of ticks in the ears of a dog or something you're like, that looks really sad. It's often ripocephalus because they can do, they can be massive numbers of ticks. Um, so we have a, a globally distributed tick. And then um, there's a new tick that was just recently introduced to the United States. So Haemophysalis longicornis, the uh, longhorn tick. 
Mm-hmm. It's, it's um, home range was Asia, spilled into Australia, and has now been introduced into North America. And it is a pretty generalist. It can feed on birds, mammals, lizards, like kind of everything. Whoa. So now that it's here in the U.S., we would expect that it's going to um, kind of spread, and, and and researchers are now tracking that. So uh-huh. there's different ticks in different areas. There's a lot more people movement, so we're always thinking yeah. about moving movement of those ticks and their diseases. Yeah, definitely. Um, and yeah, I didn't realize that there were tick species that lived indoors. I knew. Yeah, in Central America, I actually got a, a Lone Star tick, which I know do occur in the U.S., but I've never really lived far enough south in the U.S. for them to be a problem. And I was shocked. Like, I, So I grew up in northern Wisconsin where it's just, you know, deer ticks and wood ticks, um, you know, and I, I feel like I grew up getting hundreds of bites most summers. You know, our elementary school had this horrifying strip of tape where you could put your ticks on after recess. Um, and I don't know why we did that, <laughs> but we did it. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I was shocked, you know, just how much worse that Lone Star bite was. It took weeks to heal over and was like really red and inflamed. I'm not allergic to meat, so um, I guess that's good. Though I'm vegetarian, so it wouldn't have been the worst thing if I was the one to take the fall on that lottery. <laughs> yeah, the Lone Star tick is, is super interesting. Um, it does have a really um, painful attachment. Mm-hmm. So the mouth parts are a lot longer. And in fact, there's another uh, Gulf Coast tick here in the United States that I think is even more. And, and really, and being out and being someone who gets exposed to ticks for like doing tick collections, I can tell specifically when the Gulf Coast tick attaches because it's like a pain <laughs> oh level that's God. like one up from the Lone Star tick even. <laughs> But the Lone Star tick is on on a, a pretty big movement north right now, and so mm-hmm. you know maybe northern Wisconsin would still be spared right now, but it's mm-hmm. creeping into Wisconsin area as wow. well. Um, yeah, it's it's doing a big expansion uh, yeah. right now. Yeah, that whole climate change thing is probably not uh, going to help our tick situation. I assume, huh? Yeah, so I think a lot of it is uh, the warmer weathers, right? So that they can complete some kind of life cycle during the summers. The, mm-hmm. the, the winter, you know, they can hide well enough that the cold's not going to kill them. And so they are moving north. The, the deer populations really help support the Lone Star Tick, too. So, mm-hmm. I mean, there's just massive numbers of, of deer right now yeah. as well. And so as they start to move, there's not a big, we, we chat about the moving north, but there's not a trailing edge. It's not getting so hot in the south yet that they can, th- that that band is like moving up and there's less ticks in the south. The whole there's range just is more just more ticks. Extending. They're still in the south and they're moving north. And so there's <laughs> oh, just I more ticks it. everywhere. Yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> Uh, how do you feel about ticks? Do you, are you fond of them? Do you have a love-hate relationship with them? <laughs> I, I'm, uh, I dislike having ticks on me. I uh-huh. dislike having ticks on, on my pets. Um, not, so I'm very interested in kind of the unique relationship they've set up. So parasites in general are very cool because they've adapted to living in or on some kind of hosts and, and they've evolved with those hosts. And so they do really cool things. Um, so it's fascinating. Like the Lone Star mm-hmm. Tick has sensors in the front legs that can detect carbon dioxide. And so they're actually going towards uh, a mammalian host. Mm-hmm. And so when we go to collect them, we can just put dry ice traps that kind of sublimate out that carbon dioxide oh <laughs> and they'll go to that trap. So I can catch, you know, thousands of ticks in a day by putting out these, you know, uh, carbon dioxide traps with just masking uh-huh. tape because they're really drawn out. So like the physiology of how they're finding hosts, how they interact with their hosts is very inter- interesting to me. Yeah, that is fascinating. Um and yeah, that sounds kind of fun. I think I could get into that. Um, so, okay, so we know ticks are now kind of on a worldwide scale. Um, are there any specific habitat types or type times of year or anything like that that we can say in general generalities or maybe just North America? Most of our listeners are North American, but uh, definitely not a, um, a plurality. Yeah, I, I would say the vast majority of ticks require some kind of forested area to survive well, or at least the ones that we're considering of human and veterinary importance. And really, the reasons why is once they drop off of host and they spend some time in the environment to molt to their next stage, 
they need to be out of the elements. And so mm-hmm. they drop down in below the leaf litter, kind of in that first topsoil layer. And oh, uh-huh. they need to get out because uh, they're really sensitive to drying out um, mm-hmm. and heat cold uh, extremes. And if they can get down into that first layer, then they're protected. And so um, when we're thinking about, you know, specifically ticks, I'll, I'll start with North America, mm-hmm. those big deciduous forests, so oak trees type of things that gives a good leaf layer for them to hide under and then choose to come out and quest to try to find a host. Mm-hmm. So we, we think of a lot of forested areas because it also supports the, the wildlife hosts. And we think about right. where the deer are going to be, where lots of the, the larval, so the youngest stages of ticks live on rodents. So, you know, lots of forest rodents, things like that um, are necessary to support the population of ticks. And then kind of the ticks kind of can also stay alive in that environment. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. And I feel like I've heard, you know, my family, we got guinea fowl growing up because they really like eating ticks or, you know, I've heard, oh, increasing fox fox populations or possum populations might be able to help mitigate a little bit. I Is there any, uh, that probably wouldn't help us in this line of work because we're not just working in our backyard, but, you know, if you've got a resident fox, does that actually help? Um, or is that kind of a, a hopeful old wives tale at this point? Yeah, I would say for possums and guineas, like they are eating ticks and and guineas eating lots of other random insects around. They're not going to control ticks in a way that in which, you know, most people want them controlled, which is no ticks around (laughs) Um, or not having to use prevention when they go out and around. Uh, It's really, really tricky. And even when you look at how they've attempted to do control of ticks on wildlife we were thinking about the the deer tick or or black-legged tick exodes that you were talking about earlier um you know the major drivers of the populations are rodents and deer and so they found okay we can make these little um cotton homes for the rodents that are impregnated with insecticides or caricides. Mm -hmm. And so then when they use the cotton to make their little nest, it kills the ticks. Well, then they just saw those kind of shift over the ticks shift over to rodents that don't do that. They don't use cotton to make a nest or whatever it is. And then the deer, they, they did corn bait stations and that can be problematic for conservation things. Anyway, it's just like baiting animals and they use paint rollers to kind of swipe some, a caricide on the deer when they went in for corn, but they sh- they've shown that you have to have one kind of every, I don't know, 10 square miles and you have to keep them going forever and ever. And if you ever stop them, the deer just get ticks again. And yeah. so it, it's really difficult for us to control the populations of ticks out in the environment, either just trying to control them off host or on host. So that's why we have to f- just turn all of our focus on preventing the ticks from attaching and feeding on us or our pets. And that's where yeah. the, the vast majority of control is on yourself or on your pet and not really things you can do. Um, in the environment. Yeah. If, if you do live in an area that backs up to a forested area, you know, and you want to keep your kids safe on the playground then mowing the grass down in the area that you want to be safe, kind of walking around on is really the best thing to do because they don't, they're really sensitive to sunlight and drying out. And so even if you can make a 10 foot kind of mowed area between the forested area and the playground or the deck or wherever you kind uh-huh. of spend time with your family, that can help make a break to reduce your exposure in your yard. Um, yeah. But other than that, once you head out into the wilderness, it's kind of, you know, all bets off. That makes sense. Yeah. And I'm, I'm thinking of, I think it was a radio lab podcast called kill them all. That was about mosquitoes and talking about, uh, and gosh, I listened to this probably eight years ago, so I might be getting some of the details wrong, but yeah, you know, doing things like gene drives and, re- you know, introducing, uh, I think that it are infertile sterile females in yep. areas to try to control that. And it seems like, unless we want to try to go that route, which has its own, suite of concerns we're probably yeah we're probably stuck with ticks yeah and it's always tricky when we try to make 
human solutions to some of these things and we don't know the downstream when yeah. we think about what what animals are surviving off of feeding on mosquitoes and or ticks and and uh, unfortunately when we think of some of these things that cause disease in a population um, in a natural system right they're some of what they're I don't want to say job is, but some of the role they play in the whole ecosystem is killing off some animals and it's a population control. We have chosen that we do not want that to happen to us and our dogs, obviously. Uh And so then that's the problem. Kind of those disease states happen as a, you know, ecosystem check of population in, you know, for any animals. So uh, it is tricky when we're trying to battle against that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think most of our listeners are probably relatively familiar with, you know, predator control that happened in late 1800s, mid uh, into like the mid 1900s. And, uh, you know, how much that backfired on an ecosystem level and ticks, uh, I would argue are less charismatic than wolves, but uh, yeah, probably do have. um, Yeah, yeah, we just don't know. Um, what happens when we remove them. So, and anyway, I don't think any of our listeners actually have the power to do that. So maybe next we talk about prevention. What are some of our best bets for keeping ticks off of, I would actually, personally, I'm more worried about getting ticks off of my dogs because I very, very rarely since I, you know, since I was like 10, have not gotten a tick off of me within a couple hours of attaching. You know, I'm not nearly as hairy. It's my own body. It's really easy to check versus um, my my main working dog, Barley, is a long-haired black border collie. And yeah. I have to, you know, it's 100% tactile to get the ticks off of him. So anything I can do to reduce them from attaching is really, really helpful because he is so hard to tick check. Um, so all yeah. that to say, what are some of our best bets? There's a variety of options and we'll kind of go through the the kind of big categories. One of them is topical products. And so these Mm -hmm. go on the animal and they stay topically. They do not go into the body at all. And some of them are, uh, there's like permethrin products. There's some Mm -hmm. collars out there. Um, Fipronil products would, would fall into that. And it stays on the hair coat of the animal. And what I think is important for people to note about the topical products is that the ticks are exposed to that as soon as they start crawling in the hair coat, but they do not make a bubble. We're we're not Mm -hmm. putting the animal in a hamster ball. It's not really the same as kind of a repellent. Um, Mm. They do have some kind of, uh, uh, my colleague termed it a hot foot effect where they start touching the product and, and they can, it's like putting your hand on an oven or a stovetop when you're like, Oh, I don't like that. And you remove your hand really quickly. They start to do that, but every tick species is a little bit different. And Mm -hmm. so with the topical products, I'll just, I just tell people that they can kill ticks before they attach, but they don't have to, or or they don't, Mm -hmm. right? The tick may attach and then it's still continuously exposed to the product and then we'll die. But I think we should remove from our mind that any product is going to make a bubble that is mm. a, that completely protects our pets. Mm-hmm. So the topical products are good. Um, I will say that if you're out, especially for these, you know, uh, animals that are out working and doing a lot of things, the topical products can um, struggle over time. Cause if they're yeah. meant to be dosed for a full month at the end of the month, if your dog's been out in the sun a lot, so permethrin degrades in sunlight, um, if they've been in the water a bunch that can kind of dilute it mm-hmm. out. And so you may have to consider is it working through the whole month? And so that is kind of one of the concerns with the topical products is that they will degrade over time. So just being thoughtful about that. Yeah. And the, the other big class group is um, systemic products. So uh, there's right now just one drug class for ticks, um, the isoxazolines, and usually they're a chewable pill. Uh, mm-hmm. There is a version um, that is topical, but it's absorbed through the skin. Oh. And in in that, so people might know brand names, Nexgard, Brevecto. Brevecto has an oral or a topical version. Credelio uh, is an oral version. Semperica. So there, so many of the companies have a version of these. And so your veterinarian um, can kind of best uh, tune you into which product might be best for your animal. Um, but they're systemic, meaning mm-hmm. that 
the product is in the blood. And that tells us right then that the ticks have to attach to get that compound. And what what we're hoping or what our goal is, is that tick dies before it can transmit pathogens. And that's a a lot of what my lab is interested in is what's happening early while these ticks are feeding. Are they dying before the pathogens are transmitted? And so um, there's lots of good products in both the the topical and systemic products. And and one of the main things is none of them are 100%. And so we have these working dogs that are going out into the fields. And I always say, if a product's 99% effective, but you send your dog out and it sees a thousand ticks running around yeah. through the woods, there's ticks left there, right? And that yeah, is an issue. So in some of these working dogs, um, combination of a systemic product and a topical product is a good option. And they don't interact. So the systemic mm-hmm. products, uh, you would require a veterinary prescription, but they stay in the body. And the topical products, they don't go into the body. So the two products don't interact. And it could be good seasonally or you know during field trials or specific conservation work that you say, hey, I know we're going out to this you know really ticky yeah. area. I'm just going to double up. And that's a really good option for some of these hunting dogs or outdoor working dogs. Yeah, I think that's so. We were on Brovecto, I believe, or NextGuard. I can't remember. Um, in Latin America, it's a little bit of back and forth depending on which one you can pick up down there. Um, but uh, yeah, and when we were in Guatemala, I think I was pulling like 20, 30 ticks a day off of barley, um, probably two or three times a day. You know, every time we stopped, it was just like pulling dozens and dozens. And, you know, I personally was not that much better. I think. Barley because of his job and, you know, doing all of the quartering into the brush was picking a lot up, but it was pretty shocking. And he was also wearing um, his working vest. We spray permethrin on that. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think next time we'll, you know, be spraying the permethrin more regularly. We might. Can you add, would you, would it be bad in that case to also add like a Soresto collar or would that really just not do anything on top of the permethrin jacket? Um, so a, a few things, the permethrin collar is, uh, the Soresto collar is, um, impregnated with flumethrin and it's very, can be very effective. It's a, a release over time. So they formulated it so that it, it's meant to last, you know, six or eight months. Mm-hmm. And so it's a, a slow release. It's not a great option to put on your animal, the day you're going out because mm-hmm. it is takes some dedicated time for it to start spreading out over the body. But if, if you know you're going out for a field season and say, yeah. all right, you know, I've got a couple of weeks of work or a couple of months of work, putting that on, getting it kind of acclimated and then leaving it on during the field season is, is a smart idea. So it's a, a product that works very well. Mm-hmm. In in terms of you mentioned removing ticks off a dog, that is something to think about with the systemic products. Is it, it freaks some people out when they're not used to it because uh, the ticks definitely are attached, right? And yeah. and that's not a product failure. That's how the products work. And and then hopefully those those ticks die. I think it is very important to do those tick checks afterwards. And and then hopefully that product is going to kill off any ticks you miss. Like you said, sifting through a long hair, you know, black coat, you know, you're going to miss some. And so then really the tick prevention is kind of that last line of defense. Um, Any that are left on hopefully are, are killed, but sometimes owners that are new to using the systemic products, uh, when they see ticks attached, like, oh no, this product doesn't work at all. It's it's how it works. And so you right. have to get yeah. used to those expectations too. Yeah. I mean it's a it's a poison, so they have to eat the poison and they <laughs> yep. do that by biting. Um so on that note, is there anything that, you know, I usually just use my fingers if needed tweezers and just yank ticks off. Um I've never been squeamish about that, never had a huge problem with it. Um I know some people like trying to get creative with other ways to remove ticks. Um, is there any, are there any pro tips for getting ticks off beyond just yanking? Yeah, th- there's nothing really fancy about it. You want to try to grasp the tick as close to the skin as possible so that you don't leave any mouth parts in there. And and if you do accidentally break kind of the body off the mouth parts, it just turns into a splinter 
um, kind of in the body ish, uh-huh. and it'll get pushed out. Uh, but our goal is try to get remove everything at once. So we're trying to grasp as close to the skin as we can, so we can get the mouth parts out. Mm-hmm. Usually using some kind of tweezers um, is the best option. And but there's nothing really fancy. We see these like tick tools and things. Yeah. And, you can use them if you if you like to, but really just a, a pair of good tweezers that can get down to the skin. I like ones that uh, look less like the ones you're that you use from the side instead of the the front end. Most people use tweezers to like pluck their eyebrows or something using the front end of it, uh-huh. but some of the tweezers are meant to be used sideways, and then you can kind of get a grasp down. More the way you would use pliers, where you're kind of squeezing from the side and pulling okay. out. Okay, yeah. And so there's there's that's the kind of tweezers that we use that are meant to kind of grasp that way rather than end on kind of using them sideways. Yeah, and cool. I think that gives a little bit more grip as well. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And that's what I'd heard. I guess I had also heard, you know, sometimes people get crazy about putting, um, I can't even remember what they suggest, but putting something on the tick to get it to back itself out. I think I've heard that that can cause them to regurgitate as they're going back out and actually increase the risk of disease. Have you heard anything like that? Is that true in any direction? Yeah, we always get the kind of old ideas of people would say they would use a lighter to try to burn the the ticks uh, or put Vaseline on them. Mm -hmm. Um, There's really not anything you can do that's going to make them drop off the, the the Vaseline. The idea is like they would have to take a breath or something. They're they're uh, they're breathing apparatuses on their side (laughs) and Uh they've also shown that you can put ticks underwater for days and they live. (laughs) Um, because if you think about them like living kind of in that topsoil, if it floods, they have to be able to survive that flood. And so yeah. they, they can spend a lot of time without taking kind of a, a breath, if you kind of call it that. So really, again, the best way is you see a tick just to remove it, not try to do yeah. anything weird. And I hear all those like horror stories of like burning ticks off a dog and I feel so bad for the dog, right? You know, there's no yeah. need to do that. We we'll just go ahead and just pull them off. Yeah. I just have a hard time imagining doing that successfully with myself <laughs> without burning myself, let alone the dog. Yeah, um, it seems absolutely. very challenging. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I guess, okay. So now we've gone through how to keep ticks off as best we can or kill them once they're on what to do. When do we find them? What, are some of those tick-borne diseases that we should be worried about? Um, and uh, what are some of the symptoms that we can be watching for within that? Yeah, there's a, there's a whole uh, suite of kind of diseases that ticks can transmit. Um, several of them are bacterial. So mm-hmm. uh, you mentioned Ehrlichia and Anaplasma. Those are both bacteria. Dogs can get Borrelia, which is Lyme disease in, mm-hmm. in humans. Uh, again, a bacteria, and the vast majority of those require the tick to feed for some amount of time. And lot, a lot of people have in their mind that tick needs to be attached for 24 hours before that pathogen can be transmitted. And the data that supports that comes from Lyme disease. Um, that's not so much true for some of our other bacterial diseases like Ehrlichia, mm-hmm. Anaplasma, or Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, which dogs mm-hmm. can get, which is a rickettsia. Um some of those, we don't know how fast they can transmit. Um, we would assume that it may be a couple of hours, actually, just from laboratory studies. So, again, um, the sooner that you can do your tick checks, mm-hmm. remove those ticks, the sooner that you know we're hoping our products are working rapidly as well to try yeah. to kill those ticks because – I definitely don't want anyone to have in their mind that like there is a full safe zone of 24 hours. And as, as yeah. long as you find a tick within 24 hours, you're good. I, I, I just don't believe that's actually true. So again, finding those um, ticks and removing them. So the bacterial diseases, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, anaplasma, Ehrlichia, Lyme disease, big ones in, in dogs mm-hmm. uh, and, and humans, honestly, there's a couple of other um, protozoal diseases and often We'll hear about these in people whose veterinarian have accurate, uh, you know, said, I think this is a tick-borne disease. Started them on the doxycycline and did not see any improvement mm-hmm. because uh, these are protozoal organisms. So we, uh, organisms like Babesia or Hepatozoan. Uh-huh. And we often see these more in animals that interface with wildlife. So coyote interfaces with dogs, mm-hmm. things like that. And again, 
tick transmitted, but um, really mo- more associated with uh, interacting with dog, uh, wild canids or wildlife in general. Interesting. Yeah, I've got a good friend who managed to get herself um, both Lyme and uh, oh, what is the other bee one that you just said? Babesia. babesia. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. Human, humans have a babesia, babesia microti. Uh-huh. Uh, dogs actually have a couple, and so oh, cool. there's there's a uh, Babesia canis. It's much more common in Central and South America, transmitted by uh, Ripicephalus ticks, the indoor ticks. Um, there's some Babesia that are out kind of in the wild um, coyotes, and so we I see cases in people who are using dogs to hunt coyotes specifically. Uh-huh. Um, and then there's one that is uh, in its n- kind of endemic area has a tick vector in the U.S. Babesia gibsoni has actually transmitted blood to blood, and it's associated mainly with dog fighting, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And so when we think about things that are in the blood system, we also have to take into account that those could be transmitted just blood to blood contact um, as well. Yeah, that makes sense. And then, so one of the other ones that was mentioned when we were when we were looking at barley was kind of plain tick bite paralysis. What is the uh, disease ecology of that? Is that the right word? Uh, what, yeah. what is tick bite paralysis? It's so tricky. So the the tick bite paralysis um, is very variable in the U.S. Mm-hmm. It is most associated with a tick, Dermacenter variabilis, the American dog tick, um, and usually when the dog when the tick is attaching somewhere along the spine, um, oh, neck uh-huh. area, there seems to be a proximity um, effect. effect. It huh. does have a toxin that's not well character- characterized for Dermacenter variabilis. The best and most characterized one is actually Exodes holocyclus in Australia. Uh And that tick was devastating um, because it causes paralysis and is very um, repeatable. Like it happens a lot with that tick. uh Um, The nice thing about the new systemic products is they are very effective. And so both in preventing the tick from feeding long enough to, to cause that and for removing ticks. You know, if the dog comes in in a paralyzed state, removing those ticks, because often if an animal is paralyzed from tick bite paralysis, it is associated, like the continued effects of it is associated with the tick still being attached. Yeah. And so if you can uh-huh. get that tick removed, then the dog the animal kind of recover. So in the U S it's kind of tricky to track, um, in other, uh, continents, um, much more one-to-one. And, and again, Exodes holocyclus is like the poster child for it. It is a very problematic tick. Yeah. Yeah. That was what we were really hoping it was going to be for barley. And then, um, <laughs> did not turn out to be the quite that simple of just getting a tick off of him. Um, I mean, it sounds terrifying, but, um, I do like the idea of something where you just remove it. So, um, you know, as we were saying, you know, Barley, his big symptom that we were dealing with was this, like, paralysis, lack of proprioception. The very first symptom I saw from him um, was we were about to go for a walk and we paused to wait for my boyfriend. And as he turned his front end, his one of his back feet, like, flipped over. Um, so it was kind of top of the toes Knuckling, down. Yeah. I was like, oh, that is a really scary, weird, new proprioception thing I've never seen him do before. And then within four days, he couldn't walk. He was falling over. Um, really, really scary stuff. But my veterinarians were really, they were like, this doesn't seem typical to us. You know, we should really be looking for spinal lesions. We should be doing everything we can to potentially rule in or out DM. Like, this doesn't quite fit the tick stuff. So what does fit tick stuff? What should we be looking for? Yeah, I think part of the issue is it can be really variable, you know, (laughs) from mild to severe, as you you were describing. For most of the tick-borne diseases, when I chat about kind of things to look for, it's fevers of unknown origin. And I know owners are not taking temperatures uh, of their animals all the time, but kind of if, if you were to take your dog in it was like unknown fevers that would be one especially if at the vet clinic it was kind of going up and down we can kind of see it waxing and waning oh interesting um, muscle pain and joint pain 
are two big ones. And several of the tick-borne diseases would cause what is shifting leg lameness, where the owners may notice that they're kind of seem like they're limping, have joint pain in the back left leg or something. By the time they get into the veterinarian, it seems to have moved the front right leg. And, and the owner oh, says, I, I, I swear it was the back. <laughs> yeah, you were, you're right. It probably was. The, the kind of inflammation moves around. And so uh-huh. then... Um, shifting leg lameness is what they call it, where it kind of, it's moving target. Uh, and so that muscle pain or muscle weakness can be uh, another indicator of some of these common uh, tick-borne diseases. Bleeding or bruising, so inappropriate um, for for things like uh, some of the ehrlichia, so Ehrlichia canis, um, more common in South America or Central America than in, in the U.S., but we do see it, um, can have just frank bleeding, like nosebleed type of situations, Whoa. or bruising where the owner's like, you know, I mean, we, we played around, but we always play around outside. And I don't know why he's got so many bruises or he's got the, it's called petechia. It's like these tiny little um, pinpoint hemorrhages in the skin. So Whoa. any kind of bleeding or bruising, uh, we'd say that falls in the line of, you know, things that can happen in tick-borne diseases. So kind of, as I said, there's like a wide variety of signs yeah. and symptoms that pop up progressing towards things that are neurologic. And kind yeah. of, I know you experienced that end where that, that weakness was to the point of it was considering, you know, neurologic issues of spinal yeah. cord things. Um, and there can be a variety, there's been reported variety of neurologic signs associated with Ehrlichia, Anaplasma, and Rickettsia in dogs. Yeah. And remind us, uh, Rickettsia, is that another, is that a, the protozoa one or is that another bacteria? So the Rickettsia is a bacterial one. So Rickettsia uh-huh. Rickettsia is Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. Oh, okay. Humans <laughs> get that. And that one is a, a very severe uh, disease. Uh, it, inf- it infects um, the blood vessels and causes a lot of inflammation. And so we see dogs get severe bleeding abnormalities and, and that Whoa. can be a, a medical mm. emergency, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine. So, okay. So it sounds like we don't necessarily know how long the tick has to be in, uh, embedded for some of these diseases to show up. Do we know roughly how long post bite symptoms show up in, in general? Like, it sounds like this tick bite paralysis can be immediate and also almost immediate with removal. Obviously, these bacterial ones, you're not going to cure it by removing the tick, but you know, is it within a day, within a week? Do they have incubation periods? Does it depend? <laughs> yeah, it, it, it does depend. I would say that um, for things like Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, we see clinical signs in the, in the first week, for mm-hmm. sure. So I would say two to seven days okay. for, for Ehrlichia and Anaplasma, just a little bit longer, you know, in between mm-hmm. five and 10 days, we start seeing mm-hmm. clinical signs pop up. Um, and, you know, when, and this is all experimental, you know, many people, you know, at day five, their dog may have the faintest of signs and you don't yeah. quite notice. And then by day 10, it's like, oh, there's like something definitely going yeah. on where it's kind of a progression upwards. For things like Borrelia or Lyme disease in dogs, it's it's very tricky because the clinical signs are sometimes delayed. And so um, yeah. for anaplasma uh, and actually, honestly, uh, many of these tick-borne diseases, they can be quiescent or they can go quiet for a while and mm. and re reemerge and so they'll try to go into hidden spots or get down to a low enough number that the immune system can't find them and then reemerge when you know the settings are just right and so we see Assholes. that with Lyme disease in <laughs> yeah. in dogs uh anaplasma one of the anaplasmas in dogs does that quite frequently where this goes to a yeah. low low level and then reemerges say your dog needs a steroid with um, for any other reason, that's an immunosuppressive, and some of these tick-borne diseases will reemerge oh, uh, during interesting. A, an immunosuppressive event. So it can be pretty tricky. I'd say most of the time, acute disease is in the first week to two weeks, um, uh-huh. but there's a- always some long-term sequelae potential. Yeah, that makes sense. And yeah, that kind of checks out with barley. I, 
you know, I'm obsessed with him. So I've got a million and five uh, videos on my phone. And when, you know, we had that one trip on, I think it was a Saturday. And then I wasn't sure that there was anything really happening until like Monday or Tuesday. And I was watching him like crazy. And then I was going back through my phone and looking at all the photos and videos of him. And, you know, I was able to say like, okay, for sure on May 29th, he was fine. You know, and then yeah. on June 4th was when I first noticed something. And then June 8th was when we got treatment started. Um, and yeah, you know, it's just, it's, it probably must have happened in between that 29th onwards. Um, and particularly, honestly, just because of where we were in El Salvador during that like four or five day period. Um, I have a hard time imagining that he picked up ticks where we were before that period. Yeah. Um, just because we were kind of living on the beach. And then we went up and uh, stayed in the mountains for a couple days while I was recovering from LASIK. So I also might not have been doing my best tick checks ever. <laughs> um, although, as I said, I'm not using my eyeballs to find ticks on him. Um, so, okay, so let's say we've noticed some symptoms. You know, again, it could be just kind of something weird, something different. Maybe some of us are taking temperatures on our dogs regularly. Some of us aren't. Um what is our next step? You know, I'm assuming snap tests come in just because they're super easy, but um, I'm assuming that's not it. Yeah, there's there's a variety of tests, and actually, you know, uh, first and foremost is heading to your favorite veterinarian and mm-hmm. and chatting with them, right? Because uh, there's a, a workup of diagnostics. The the snap tests that you mentioned, these are in clinic antibody tests, and mm-hmm. that they actually take a little bit of time for the antibodies to develop. And so, if, if you were to say just a normal like infection, when do we expect antibodies from an infection? Just general whatever usually takes 10 to 14 days to generate an antibody response Mm -hmm. and so those in clinic antibody tests they're often um, unable to detect diseases um, in the first week couple of days right Uh and if we have something like rocky mountain spotted fever that is like a very aggressive disease if we were waiting for an antibody response we probably we we could potentially have a, an, a dead dog before we had an antibody Jeez, response. Yeah. And so that, that, that uh, Rocky Mountain spotted fever is not on any of those in-clinic tests. So while the veterinarian may in-clinic look for antibodies to kind of give them evidence, there's also send out tests. So they do PCR on whole blood because mm-hmm. you, you're able, often able to detect the pathogens. So um, Ehrlichia anaplasma, they're circulating in the blood. Rickettsia is a little trickier because it's actually in the vessels, but kind of once Whoa. those yeah, vessels yeah. start blowing up, then you can often find it. Uh, most tricky for Lyme disease or Borrelia in dogs because it does not like to be in the blood. It likes to hide out and move around through the tissues, end up in joints and things like that. And so there's a variety of diagnostic tests they may use to kind of rule in or rule out. Um, but really, if your veterinarian was um, said, hey, I need to look at some blood work, so chemistry and and CBC or looking at the blood counts. Mm-hmm. Many of these tick-borne diseases infect the blood cells and cause issues in the blood cells. So uh, a, a CBC is a really great place for your veterinarian to start out. Um, may do those antibody testings and may send off for some other kind of confirmatory tests on whole blood. Um, but it can be really tricky to to get these diagnoses. And and sometimes veterinarians say, you know, I have a huge high suspicion that this is a tick-borne disease and I may want to start your dog on doxycycline while we're waiting for more information to come back because waiting is just not going to help out anything. And so we'll start some doxycycline, we'll get some results back and we may reinterpret our use of that doxycycline once we get some more information, but let's go start on something right now. Yeah. That's what we did. Um, you know, they were like, let's, let's get you on doxy. We'll get barley on doxy, um, and a couple other supplementary, um, things. Cause his lever- liver levels were also really, really off. Um, so they put him on something for the liver and then they put him on some sort of neurotransmitter support as well. Um, and again, this was a vet in El Salvador. So a lot of these medicines, I'm like furiously Googling them because I've never heard of them, which obviously I haven't been to vet school, so I don't expect to have heard of everything, but, um, yeah. And you know, they said, why don't we do that while we wait to get him into an MRI and get, you know, some of these other tests going. Um, and then we ended up canceling the MRI because whatever it was, the doxy really did its, its job, but, um, that was kind of our plan. 
and that is the nice thing when I chat with uh, owners about um, do- dogs that have, you know, suspect um, tick-borne diseases, and especially if it's pretty significant disease uh, or clinical signs. The doxycycline, you start to see some pretty quick changes. Yeah, uh, if it is one of these bacterial um, diseases. Now, not the protozoal diseases, not right. kind of other things, but, uh, you know, having a good feel, checking back in with your veterinarian and saying, hey, we're, we're two days, three days out. I'm already seeing some, you know, improvement. That's good. That's good feedback, good news to like, let's keep doing things or, hey, we're two days out and like, it's getting worse. And if, if yeah. it's getting worse in the face of, of doxycycline, it's very effective against these bacterial pathogens. Then it may be time to like you know start th- considering other things going on, uh, other tick-borne diseases, just other diseases in general, yeah, um, and not just continuously waiting for you know the whole thirty days of doxycycline to like completely you know clear everything. They get better pretty rapidly, yeah. Um, so it's a good feedback system to have if you think you're on the right track. Yeah, we really did see improvement within a couple days, um, and I would say within a week. And then, yeah, it was it was kind of like it improved for a week, and then it plateaued for four or five days, and then I would get really scared again, and then it would start improving again, and then plateau again. And, um, yeah, so I guess on that note, then, what what is prognosis like? And, again, I know this varies massively depending on what the dog actually has, but do most dogs, if treated appropriately, fully recover from tick-borne illnesses or are there certain illnesses where you might be dealing with symptoms or kind of repercussions for life? Yeah, it, it does vary. Uh, one of the things on the treatment I think worth mentioning is although the animals do get better fairly rapidly, um, if your dog, you think, oh, my dog's back to normal after seven days, you should still continue the full course of antibiotics yeah. that your veterinarian recommends because, as I mentioned, sometimes they go into hiding on a low level yeah. and it can come back. And so even if you are like, oh, man, dog's good as new after seven days, if your veterinarian has prescribed you know, 28 days or whatever it is, it's best to follow the full course of antibiotics yeah. because there are some long-term um, issues. And really, uh, it varies, I think. With most of these um, tick-borne diseases, prompt administration of uh, treatment can get most of these dogs back to 100%. Cool. Yeah, that's great um, to hear. <laughs> some scary ones like Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, it is scary for humans and dogs. Even in the face of treatment, there is really uh, a high mortality, honestly. Um, and so the sooner that treatment is, you know, initiated, the better the prognosis. You can imagine if you're kind of blowing up the blood vessels, you can do a lot of damage pretty quickly. Uh, So trying to get that um, turned around. Some of these, um, like Lyme disease in dogs, is really interesting. Um, It doesn't present in the same way it does in humans. And actually, one of the major issues is the immune response kind of complexes with, you know, just weird, I don't know, bacterial debris, I got to say, honestly, uh, these antigens and those antibody antigen complexes deposit in the kidneys and cause long-term kidney damage. And so it's not the bacteria. So you think like, oh, I'm just going to give more doxycycline. Well, it's not the bacteria doing it. It's not the bacteria Swiss cheesing through the kidneys and causing damage. It's the deposition of these kind of, um, uh, antigen antibody complexes. And if you think of it similar to, you know, if you're, if your sink just starts getting clogged up uh, with random junk, mm-hmm. that's what's happening. The kidneys are filtering the blood. There's these antigen antibody complexes. You start to just clog up the kidneys with junk and it's not doing what it's supposed to be doing. So um, long-term kidney damage is actually one of the issues uh, with Lyme disease in dogs. And it's really, really tricky to get that treatment initiated in a timely manner in which these yeah. long-term things don't happen. And cause it can be very separated from the acute phase of the, the disease. So um, I think overall most prognosis would be pretty good with yeah. prompt um, startment of starting of treatment, but they, you know, I think your veterinarian can do a pretty good job of setting some ex- yeah. expectations because it can be tricky. 
Yeah. So um, on the note of Lyme, there is a vaccine for Lyme, right? Is that something that you generally recommend people go ahead and do? You know, we were just talking to someone about rattlesnakes and, you know, there's a lot of a lot of um, uh, hesitancy and doubt around the vaccine for rattlesnake bites. Uh, it seems like within uh, with good reason. Um, but Lyme vaccine, how well does it work? Yeah, so um, the the vaccine is effective. So there's a, a wide variety from companies. They are they are effective vaccines, and what uh, what you can see from the data, at least, is if a if a clinic implements vaccination, um, that clinic will see less positive tests and mm-hmm. less clinical dogs. We, cool. we know that. Yeah. Now, what it's been pitched as, and I think this is appropriate, that these that vaccine is not a core vaccine uh, yeah. for for the vast majority of parts. It's a risk based vaccine. And so, if you live in a high risk area, so for Lyme disease, if you live in Pennsylvania, your veterinarian may consider it like standard. Like yeah. he would, he or she would very heavily recommend this mm-hmm. vaccine. But it's not core in the way like a rabies vaccine is core. Yeah. Like everyone's got to do it. Um, so it's a risk based, and the risk if you're in an endemic area is very high. So you may get recommended every time you go. If you're on the fringe areas of where Lyme disease is commonly found, your veterinarian may ask you, oh, you know, do you go hunting up in Wisconsin? Uh, do yeah. you, you you go back and see family and do nature hikes? This vaccine might be recommended for you. So I'm here in Kansas, uh, very low risk for Lyme disease in the state. My, neither of my dogs are vaccinated for it. Um, but if I were to go do some summer trips, you know, in Wisconsin, Michigan, um, Pennsylvania, New York, wherever, and take them with me, I would want to have them vaccinated. It's just another layer of um, uh, safety, yeah, in kind of that our tick control is ninety nine percent, and we like that. But you know, if something breaks through, let's just go ahead and prevent the chance that the disease slips through as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, and especially for Lyme because it it is such a tricky disease on so many levels. <clears throat> uh, that yeah, it's nice that that it does exist for Lyme. It would be nice if we had one for all of them, but uh, yeah. I'm glad it exists for Lyme. And yeah, both of my dogs are vaccinated. And it was it was tricky getting them vaccinated at first because, you know, I was living in Colorado and then Montana and my vets didn't necessarily have it on hand. Um, and I would be like, oh, I'm about to go do f- field work in Northeast Nebraska. I'd really like to have it before I go there. And we ended up just having to do vaccine on the ground in Nebraska because they just didn't have it in Montana. Yeah, and, and I think veterinarians also are, are getting much better at um you know recognizing the huge movement of people and animals you know around uh, the our pets are almost always with us now and so um having options to um provide care for things that are not found in their region uh, i think it's much more common to find places that stock a few vaccines or are able to get that for you just because you're traveling and so having those conversations with your veterinarian of like what your lifestyle is really helps yeah. them kind of okay what prevention plan is best for you based off of your lifestyle yeah yeah that um that's that makes sense which is one of my most overused phrases i find whenever i edit these podcasts um <laughs> So is there anything that you'd like to expand on, circle back to, or that I didn't ask you about that people should be thinking about as far as keeping their dogs safe from tick-borne diseases? Um, I think there's some interesting things uh, in how we look at the data for um, dogs' exposure to tick-borne diseases that's like this crowd might find um, interesting yeah. Um, because the in-clinic antibody tests are done on a yearly basis with heartworm tests. We have a lot of data on Mm -hmm. where dogs test positive. And in fact, uh, there's now multiple publications showing that if dogs test positive for specific diseases in a region, we know that that 
that increases the chance the humans will also test positive for that disease. Oh, uh-huh. So because of the more routine testing, we've been able to use dog testing to help us track the spread of where these diseases are going. Mm-hmm. Um, because human reporting is difficult, right? Then someone has to choose to go to the doctor. They have to get the right test and be diagnosed with the disease versus many of these uh, antibody tests are just done yearly on a wellness exam. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, one of the cool things that the veterinary community has done is created risk maps for these diseases that are more accurate than any ra- risk map that you would create for modeling where humans have been infected with the, with these pathogens. Cool. Because of the more routine nature of it, the huge number of tests that the veterinary community is able to do. And so... Um, some of the modeling that's being done right now uh, by the Companion Animal Parasite Council uh, is very interesting in showing like where some of these tick-borne diseases are moving and, and really where humans are at risk of being infected as well. Yeah, definitely. Because, you know, I, yeah, I, as scary as it was to have my dog uh, fall ill with a tick-borne disease or a pair of them, uh, I also really don't want Lyme or any of these other, you know, Rocky Mountain spotted fever. Um yeah, so I guess maybe it sounds like this companion animal uh, parasite council would be a good place to go if people are interested in, you know, cross-referencing where they live with some of these range maps. Um, yeah, they have correct? cool forecast maps of like where they expect kind of the high endemic areas to be each year. They also have county level maps in in which you can go to your state, click on your county, and you see the number of tests that have been done in your county and in the percent that are positive, right? And and the data on that can be skewing, right? If you go in the middle of nowhere and a clinic has two tests and one of them is positive, then that county is 50% positive. Like, ah, that seems really scary. Um, But many of these counties have a high number of tests kind of normalize the data out. Um, And so you can get an idea of what the risk is in in your area. And so the, the maps, the county maps are like, true data points. That's the number of tests that were done wow. in, in this county. You can choose which year. So 2022, I can look. And that is like actual numbers of tests. It is not modeled, made up data. This is the, the number of tests that were done and the, the percent that were positive. And then the forecast maps um, are really the, the statisticians incorporating, you know, temperature environmental changes that might affect the flow of, of where we see these diseases and predicting, okay, this year we, we expect kind of this disease to spread in this way. And so there's some mm-hmm. forecasted maps and those are, again, kind of our predictions of what is to come. Yeah. Wow. That sounds really fascinating and super helpful. So we'll be sure to link to that in the show notes and, uh, you know, per usual to our non-North American uh, listeners. I hope that there's something like this that you guys can find. Um, yeah. The, um, I, I'll say that uh, there's a lot of parasitology associations. So TropCap would be the one. So it's a, a tr- tropical parasite group uh-huh. um, that would cover kind of Central and South America. Uh-huh. Um uh, there's a European Society of Parasitology, so SCAP, uh, Companion Animal Parasitology. They are actually starting to do their own maps as oh, cool. well. Mm-hmm. So this is becoming a thing where people want to know where these diseases are, what the risk is as they move around. And so lots of these organizations are attempting to put together some um, general ideas on kind of what diseases you might expect in, in this area and, and kind of what the relative risk would be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that's going to be really, really helpful. And, um, I, yeah, I'm excited to be able to share that with people. I'm going to go check. Cause I just, so I just moved to Corvallis, Oregon, like three weeks ago. I don't, I don't know what's out here. Um, <laughs> and, uh, what I need to be watching for. Um, so I'll, I'll be checking that out after we get off. Um, so Brian, we're going to link all of this in the show notes, but where can people other than, um, those resources that we just mentioned, where can people go if they want to learn more about you or tick-borne diseases? Really, uh, I, I keep a low profile. Um, uh-huh. So, um, you know, I work here at Kansas State University. My mm-hmm. position is part research, part diagnostic. So I work at the Kansas State Veterinary Diagnostic Lab. And if anyone has questions on 
ticks, tick-borne diseases, or, or parasites in general, they can contact me through K-State um, uh-huh. at the College of Veterinary Medicine here or the Kansas State Veterinary Diagnostic Lab. And I'm always happy to chat about um, you know parasites in general with owners and veterinarians. <laughs> Great. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll send an army of canine conservationists to tell you all about their weird parasites that they've picked up. <laughs> yeah, I'm interested. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's fun. We were just saying, yeah, I I had a hookworm once. Uh, oh. I have not yet gotten my my uh, my bot fly, but uh, <laughs> one it's of these like, days I'm it, sure. <laughs> yeah, if you're spending a lot of time in Central and South America, yeah. it, it it definitely. Is I mean, like I'll a, take the bot fly a hundred times over leishmaniasis, so uh-huh. that's the yeah, one there, I'm just trying to. <laughs> there's stay certain things that you can tolerate, and certain things that are like, no, it's a no for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not excited about it. Um, it looks gross, but uh, I just read a book um on some about some explorers in Honduras where just like all of them got leishmaniasis, and it just sounded terrible. Yeah. So on that note, I hope that everyone is still excited excited to go outside and be a canine conservationist in whatever way suits their passions and skill set. Don't forget your permethrin. And as always, you can find our show notes, donate to canine conservationists, join our Patreon learning club and book club, or sign up for our handler course all at canineconservationists.org. Until next time.